0: Hello again, Richard Pearce here with the fourth out of what actually are six stories in the Gates short story collection rather than the five that I assumed it was because my memory is dreadful. Um, This one is called The National Fraud. It's not fucking working. He thumped the table, his public school accent replaced by the vernacular, the vowels sharp and half the last words slipping back down his throat. There's no way I'm going to win, and there's only eight weeks to go. His tie was halfway down his chest, and his dark hair a mess of a mop. Calm yourself, Mike, the Australian accent of dissonance. You can fucking well call me Prime Minister. Prime Minister. He didn't stop staring. You shouldn't believe everything you read in the papers. I don't fucking believe anything, the PM snarled. We write it for them anyway, except for the fucking polls. Nash raised an eyebrow. Really? The room around them went silent. They were alone in the cabinet room, the vast expanse of highly polished table stretching away from them to the white double door at the far end. The PM ran his small hands through his hair, disarranging it even more. What's that supposed to mean? It means, Prime Minister, that we might be lulling the oppo into a false sense of security. Might, might... He thumped the table again. Stop talking in bloody riddles, man. Are we or aren't we? Do you really want to know everything about how we're going to win? Nash said, even if it's not strictly speaking legal. The PM sat up straight. Talk to me, Martin, and talk to me properly. I'm not paying you 300 grand for three months' work for you to keep things from me. He managed a short laugh, a (laughs) snarl. It's not as if I've got anything to lose, is it? And if they torture me, I won't tell. Honest. A sense of humour, Prime Minister. That's nice. Fuck off and tell me what you're thinking. An hour later, Nash pushed open one half of the double door, a slight smile on his face. Leave him be, he said to the Permanent Secretary, who was going to go in to speak to the PM. He's got a lot on his mind. Give him half an hour but he's got Nash pulled the door shut and grabbed the secretary by the throat with his free hand. You'll do as you're fucking well told, you little shrimp, he hissed through his teeth, or the civil service could be persuaded to give you up as a bad job. He let go of the man's throat. Now piss off back where you came from. Inside the cabinet room, the PM opened the window to the garden. put his hand in his pocket where he still kept a pack of cigarettes. He leaned out of the window and lit one of the damn delicious things, thought back to his time at university. His beliefs were still the same now, weren't they? He couldn't help laughing when he thought about the joke they'd always made about one of the colleges going mixed when it started taking state school boys. They'd made fun of the little upstarts, of course. They didn't have the right to be there, after all, did they? That crowd without any money and those fucking liberal ideas that were of no use to anyone... What was the world if those with money didn't make more money? He remembered burning fifty-pound notes, although he was sure he shouldn't have remembered. Three bottles of Bollinger down his neck and vomit on his shoes. God, this flood of liberalism everywhere now and political correctness. He couldn't stand it. He threw the cigarette onto the lawn and turned back into the room. He bent down to reach into the inside pocket of his jacket draped carelessly over the back of one of the ancient chairs and pulled out the smartphone no one knew he had, the smartphone he wasn't allowed to have, because all the PM's conversations should be recorded and noted by his civil servants. Only Martin and Pippa had its number, and it fixed it so its number wouldn't display at the other end and turned all the location apps off so that even the internet wouldn't know where or who he was. There was a stack of pigeonholes downstairs right behind that famous black front door in the entrance hall where visitors were meant to deposit their mobile phones and anything else they might have that could be used to eavesdrop on what was happening in the corridors of power. But he could afford to ignore that. He wasn't PM for nothing and it was about to cost him a lot more. He shrugged, went to check his current account on the sleek screen of the metallic phone, weighed it in his hand while he waited for the numbers to come up, raised an eyebrow when the screen turned green and white and black frowned not even Pippa knew about this account he closed the browser pressed a shortcut button put the phone to his ear giles he said give me some liquidity will you ten and a half mil okay the voice on the phone didn't ask questions never asked questions that's why they did business thanks the pm said five minutes giles said good the pm pressed the red button and cut the call By the window again, he lit another cigarette, exhaled luxuriously. Thank God for good old Maggie. Just to think that if she hadn't had those gates installed at the height of her unpopularity, what scum might even now be lounging against the walls of the foreign office opposite. They were safe now. They'd be even safer once that money arrived in his account. Cigarette done, he checked his phone. Five minutes gone. He opened the browser again, checked the balance again, keyed in some numbers, a transfer request, clicked on another button to confirm. Done. His hand was sweaty when he initiated the next call to Nash. Do it, he said. Polling day. The sun freckles the early morning pavements with light and shade. People are out early. There are quiet but excited queues at most polling stations across the country a cult phenomenon on social media led almost single-handedly by a seventeen-year-old girl has brought a smile to everyone's faces except to those of the ruling party's mps there's optimism in the air There will be change, there will be a change, an end to austerity, an end to the destruction of welfare in the National Health Service, an end to smug faces looking out of the TV at all the disenfranchised, at all those who've had to burn furniture every winter until there was nothing left, until the houses were empty and echoing and desperate. No visits to the food banks today because tomorrow we won't need them because tomorrow the good will have inherited the earth, the public school kids and the bankers and the profiteers will have abused. And the good will change the world. The rustle of paper and pencil sweeps across the nation. Tomorrow will be a better day. The sun shines nearly all day, almost everywhere. People vote briskly, certainly. There is still activity in the streets when dusk falls. Parents voting with their children, voting for the first time. Youngsters not yet entitled to vote, visiting polling stations with their parents. Young people, teenagers, desperate to be able to vote, hang around outside the buildings with the big signs outside them, wishing they could already vote, wishing to be free from the parental shackles, the state and its vested interests, tied them down with, change is in the dusk, everyone can smell it. Evening. The PM has retired to his constituency in the country. He paces around the study in the big house, one eye on the TV, one eye on his phone. It'll be fine. His wife, fragile yet big-boned, leans back into the sofa. You'll be fine. It's as good as one, she smiles to herself. And what would you know? I'm being the dutiful wife, she says. As always, he says. As always, she grabs a glass of wine, not that you merit it. You said you'd leave that be. I would if you didn't snap at me every time I speak, she says. I'm not thick, you know, and certainly not as thick as you think. For the last time, he says, I'm sorry. She says, you know it's too late for that. You knew it was too late for that when you told that BBC bloke you were only going to serve one more five-year term. Well, he says, that was a mistake to tell him she says or to serve another term despite are you threatening me he says do you know it's done she says once all this is over we're finished he opens his mouth to speak but she stops him and nothing you do or say can change that if you told me about it if you'd been honest i might have had it in me to forgive you but to find out that way to find you next door with your trousers down You weren't meant to, he says. (laughs) She laughs a little too shrill. I'm sure I wasn't. I'm pretty fucking bloody sure I wasn't meant to. She pours herself another glass. But that's not the point, is it? He says, and what will you do then when the five years are up? I'll take the children and I'll live abroad somewhere, she says. There's enough money. There always was. Perhaps that's why you did what you did. Perhaps you've always had everything you've wanted. So have you, he says. His eyes wander to the TV again then to the closed study door. When? Have you ever wanted for anything? That's exactly what you don't understand, she says, and gets up and walks out of the room. Get your acceptance speech ready, she says, and closes the door quietly behind her. An hour to go until the exit poll's published. The leader of the opposition sits at the kitchen table in his house in the urbanity of his constituents in the heart of what was mining country, He twiddles the pen in his hand, runs his eyes down the scribbles on the unlined paper on the table in front of him. He frowns. What's the matter, his wife says, stands behind him, massaging his shoulders gently, warming his muscles worn out from standing up straight in front of those who would destroy him, on TV, on the stump, everywhere. Is there any point writing a victory speech, he says. Don't you believe you've won, she says. I'd like to believe we've won, he says, but I can't see it his head droops. For the country, this was meant to be about the country, never about me. Listen to me, she says, and strokes his unruly hair, greying by his ears. You did your best. There's a big chance you can govern in a minority. Everyone thinks so. He shakes his head. I'm sure he's up to something. That smug little grin every time he's on the telly in the papers, his papers. Be prepared, she says. That's all. Be ready for any eventuality. There's nothing else you can do now. Night has finally come. The last five years have been leading up to this moment. Five minutes to ten, and the national broadcasters start their election broadcasts. People all over the country settle in front of their televisions and radios, prepared to sit up all night. Has he got the right envelope? The PM stares at the TV at the Welsh newsman with a tiny square in his hand, wishes he could smoke right now, wishes he could allow himself more than a quarter of an inch of scotch as he waits. What if it hasn't worked? The leader of the opposition, on his feet, glares at the tiny TV screen in his kitchen. A minute to go before Hugh opens that envelope, before the exit poll is public, before anyone knows how the election might have gone. It could be wrong, of course, like it was in 1992. He doesn't want to think of 1992. All the polls since then have been right to within three seats. He clenches his fingers around the kitchen chair so tightly his bones crack. Big Ben starts to chime. The comical Welshman makes a great show of opening the envelope. His face freezes for a fraction of a second. Then he stares at the camera. There you are, he says as the graphic unfolds on the screen next to him. The ruling party returned as the biggest party in the next parliament. Massive losses for the coalition partners and similar losses for the opposition. Yes! The PM punches the air and allows himself an inch of scotch. He's done it. He's only fucking done it. His secret phone beeps. It's happening now, Nash says, and hangs up. Oh, God. The leader of the opposition almost crumples, his legs momentarily weak. How can this be? "'We were getting our best ever returns on the ground. "'What have we done wrong?' "'His wife puts her arms round him "'as he begins to weep the tears of an honest man. "'No one noticed the vans amongst the dozens of vans "'in those constituencies that were marginal "'and where no local elections were taking place. "'No one noticed the dark windows on the vans "'nor how they followed the ballot box vans "'when they left the polling stations.' and no one took any notice of the slight delays in the arrival of the ballot boxes to the counting centres. High turnout, everyone said, bound to be different this time, when Houghton and Sunderland South declares almost 15 minutes later than intended. This only confirms that particular illusion. Perfect, Nash says to his vacant room, and I didn't even plan that. Ex-politicians promise to eat a hat, a kilt, and various other spurious objects if the exit polls right. Pollsters bluster about the imprecise science of polls, and scientists, cage-lip proud, propound on the exactest of science for the exit polls. They're all liars trying to save themselves from the inevitable backlash. The dark warehouse echoes with the light of subdued torches and the dull thud of plastic box against plastic box. None of the shadowy figures say a word. They know what to do, and they do it. Drugs erase memories, drugs er erase the loss of ten minutes here or there. No one will know what happened. There are ways and means for everything. Even changing the votes on numbered secret ballot papers, even ballot papers linked to names and addresses, because nothing in a state is ever secret to those at the very top of it, and always to those at the very bottom, to those who were never enfranchised in the first place. It's only occasionally that history isn't manipulated. Slightly drowsy drivers drop their van loads at the counting centres. Everything's so hectic, no one monitors the time it takes the vans to drive from polling station to counting centre. Only in a couple of constituencies do a few people notice some irregularities of timing. Nothing to do with turnout and everything with how long it takes a van to travel a fixed distance late at night with hardly any traffic. There's talk in one constituency in the South of stolen ballot papers. There's a minor blip on social media. A minor blip. History flinches. The day after election day, defeat after defeat for the coalition partners. Decimated by their ruling friends become enemies. The opposition doesn't fare much better. The exit poll has been optimistic. By the time the country's back at work, the picture's clear. The ruling party has won a majority a small majority, but a majority nonetheless. Leaders resign, three of them, one after the other, two in tears, one in anger. Social media is a light only for one of them. The fourth leader appears in the camera lights, his smile anything but tight, his elation anything but hidden, his agenda clear for the next 100 days. Behind his eyes, nothing but venom. They will pay. The scum will pay with their souls. They'll be crushed by the time I fucking finish with them. Weeks later, back in Downing Street, the cabinet room, again deserted, strikes rippling up and down the country. The PM sits down with Nash. His tie is done up this time, his face blank and pale, almost friendly. His jacket snug around the waist, grown an inch or two already since the victory. "'Happy?' Nash says. Of course. My job's done, Nash says. Yes, the Prime Minister says. You've everything you need? Nash pats his pocket. Of course, but not in here. He gets up. I think you'll need another campaign adviser next time. I'll be staying out of the UK for a while. If you insist, I'll ask you again in five years. Don't waste your breath, Nash says. I'm not sure I can pull that one off again. Not that well, anyway. Best to end on a masterpiece. Suit yourself. The PM walks to the doors with him. I should thank you, but you won't, Nash says. I think the money'll do, the PM says. Five hours later, Nash's Gulfstream disappears from the radar screens. Five months later, the majority reduces. MPs defect to a variety of parties, left of centre, far right. Strikes cripple transport, post, communications and broadcasting. There are demonstrations every day outside the gates to Downing Street. The pound begins to fall against the euro. Students occupy the universities. Rebellion stalks the streets. History folds in on itself. Again.